Check. Very good. Thanks, Greg. The younger. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what it means to live the Christian life? What it means to be a Christian? Is being a Christian simply a matter of doing the right thing, obeying all the rules? Or is there something more involved, something deeper, something more profound? When exhorted to mind your life and doctrine closely, how do you evaluate your Christian walk? What measure, what metric, what methodology, what tools do you use to evaluate to determine the health or the, the goodness, the legitimacy of your Christian walk? What does it mean to live the Christian life? This morning, fortunately, we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Jesus, as recorded by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, and the theme of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, answers these pressing questions. The Sermon on the Mount tells us not just how a Christian is to act, but more importantly, who a Christian is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, let's, before we dig in and look at the answers to these questions, um, let's go before our Lord, and if you join with me and ask God to bless our time together as we study these, these deep and profound and, and rewarding truths. Dear Jesus, Father, I pray this morning that you would help me to make the best use of any gifts that you've given me to both clearly understand and communicate your life-changing truth that's found in your word. God, grant all of us, I pray, the ability to understand your word, to be corrected by your Holy Spirit, to repent of any righteousness other than yours, to be sanctified as we recognize what Jesus has done for us, and most importantly, above all other things, to give you glory as our hearts and minds and lives are changed by the work of your Spirit in our lives. If your Bible's not already open from uh, Jeff's readings, if you'd open your Bibles um, to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to get started with this morning's um, study of God's Word. Again, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we don't, we're not going to be here all week, so don't worry. Um, it's, it's several chapters. Um, we're going to be studying the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, the central theme that actually answers the questions we just raised. What does it mean to live the Christian life? Structurally, we're going to be looking at this, uh, answering that question. What does it mean to live the Christian life in, in three components or three sections? What a Christian does, who a Christian is, and who a Christian knows. That's what a Christian does, who a Christian is, and who a Christian knows. I might spend a little bit longer in that first point, um, so if you think that we're going to be here till, till dinner time, that's not going to be the case. Um, but just be forewarned that part, part one, point one, might take a bit longer than all the rest, but it's, it's very rich. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, um, we're going to begin by looking there at what a Christian does. And to establish some context, um, it's, it's helpful to have the lay of the land of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I don't want to get into, there's whole books that have been written that go on and on and on about the structure and different ways of dividing this text. Um, but if you step back at it at a high level, and if you don't want to get too overly analytic about the whole thing, uh, the Sermon on the Mount contains Beatitudes at the beginning, 
again, this is gross chunks of data. The Beatitudes at the beginning, then it's got a section of commands, and then there's, there's, there's a section of warnings at the end. And the majority, the lar largest share of the text itself is the commands, stretching over two, two chapters, two and a half chapters. The Beatitudes introduce the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, a short section on salt and light. There's the commands, and then there's the warnings at the end. At the beginning of the commands, where we're starting off right now, before the body of the commands actually kick off, there's actually an introduction to that. And that's what we're looking at first here this morning from verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. They provide a context. Here's Jesus Christ coming to, this is his first public discourse to the people. This is the first discourse out of four or five in the, in the, in the book of Matthew, basically. And it's, it's Jesus' political, it's his political, it's his public unveiling. And so what Jesus is starting off with here basically is, is several verses that set the tone of everything else that follows in the commands. In verse 517, we see, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in some ways, Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry. I've come, I've got authority and power, but I'm not here, to, I'm not a total rebel. I'm not turning over tables, no. I'm not turning over all the rules that have come beforehand, but actually, I'm here to fulfill them. So, two points to that. Not, not a total rebel, but somehow, in some way, Jesus is hinting at something deeper, this fulfillment portion. If you jump to verse 20, you see Jesus saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus follows up his initial statement, I'm not turning everything over, I'm here to fulfill, by basically giving us a bit more information, a greater hint. I think the key phrase here is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of the scribes of the Pharisees. Jesus is calling his disciples, a mixed crowd of disciples and non-disciples, but primarily his disciples are believed to be the closest to him at this point in time. Jesus is calling his disciples to a righteousness that is greater than that, than that of the scribes of the Pharisees. And note what the goal of this, this greater righteousness is. It's not just to be a good person or to be a good Christian or to be um, as holy or as righteously considered as the scribes and the Pharisees. The goal of all this basically is if you don't have this righteousness that exceeds the scribe and the Pharisees, you will never enter the uh, kingdom of heaven. So it's the price of entry into the kingdom. Well, so Jesus kind of leaves us hanging. He introduces this section of commands by saying, I'm not here to turn everything over, and I'm here to give you something deeper and greater. But what does that look like? What are the details, Jesus? You're kind of, this is a vision statement, it's kind of high level, but what does that look like? And so the commands that constitute the majority of the Sermon on the Mount itself, they run from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way back to chapter 7, verse 11. It's the commands that provide case-by-case -case examples of what that looks like, what this really looks like. And in this area, we'll see basically Jesus filling in some of the details so we can actually see what it means to live the Christian life, and specifically, again, answering our question um, in our first outline point, that of what a Christian does, right? So... Let's turn to chapter 5, verse 21, to see Jesus' first command, 
we provide some of the flesh, put some of the flesh on the bones on this, and where Jesus talks about murder. Hang on one sec here. Matthew 5, 21 reads and gives us Jesus <coughs> insight, commandments, expectations, greater righteousness, <coughs> excuse me, regarding murder. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother <coughs> excuse me, will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the councils. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see a common theme here? There's a common theme here basically again is where Jesus is saying, and, and this is all through, well, this is through most of the commandments. Jesus basically um, says A and then B. Some people call these the, uh, the antith antithesis, the antitheses, however that's pronounced, but that's confusing and that's a 50 cent word. Um, I think it's easier and clearer to call it the commands of Jesus, but the, the typical pattern of speech that Jesus uses here, he always says, you have heard it said A, but I say B. You have heard it said X, and I say Z. In each of these cases, basically, Jesus repeats and affirms what was said earlier, but then takes it a step deeper. And that's what you see again here. Jesus says, you have, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And murdering is a bad thing, obviously, because murder in that day and age, and it is in this day and age as well, basically is a situation of where every one of us, saved and unsaved, is created in the image of God. And by me killing you or somebody killing somebody else, that's extinguishing the image of God, and that's a bad thing. But notice how Jesus raises the bar here. Not only is murder bad, the physical act of murder, but the seed of murder, what is at the heart or the root of murder is just as bad. If, if I insult my brother, I'm liable to the council, and whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. That doesn't sound good, does it? Just for calling somebody a fool, I don't know how direct this is, Jesus, but it sounds to me like if, I'm, if I say you fool towards somebody or something worse, I'm liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus has raised the bar here from murder being bad to just disregarding somebody as bad as well, too. So raise the bar, right? It's a greater righteousness Jesus is calling us to here. Let's look at how Jesus talks about adultery, the rules that he sets up here. In 527, we see, we read... You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the same way, X, A, and B. X, Y, and Z, right? Jesus said, you've heard it said, adultery's wrong, and he's confirming that. But Jesus raises the bar and says, the thought itself, the lustful intent itself is just as bad heavy stuff. Let's look at what Jesus tells us about oaths in 533. And you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath for your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. My understanding is, from what I've read, is that the Pharisees had this clever bait-and-switch campaign to dishonestly get out of promises or commitments. And you've probably seen every day you get ads or flyers for things that are half the price of what you normally would buy. And you, then you see all the fine print down below, and it's really small, and you've got to pull your glasses off and you know, put it up to your eyes or get a magnifying glass out to read it. And um, the Pharisees, I guess, in some ways had something along the lines of, well, you, I swore an oath by the footstool, and, and it was supposed to be, well, if you had sworn by the footstool of the great king, it'd be legitimate, but you forgot to say the great king, so therefore your oath, my oath that I made to you um, was illegitimate, and so I can break the promise that I made to you. Long story short, what Jesus is telling us here about oaths is that Christians should be people of our word, basically, and that our yes should be yes and our no should be no, and that that yes and no should actually be good as a signed contract. Let's look at what Jesus says regarding the standard of living forgiving. In chapter 5, verse 40 to 42, Jesus tells us how to give our heart attitude and our actions. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Once again, Jesus is raising the bar. Probably the best example to draw out of here was um, in verse 40. It talks about, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And back in those days, if you were a citizen of Rome, you could be conscripted and assigned and brought into service and told that um, the army's here and you're to, you're to help Jeff Casanelli here carry this, uh, Sergeant Casanelli here carry this burden um, one mile. And Jesus is saying, you know what, if you're asked to go one mile and you're forced to go one mile, if you're treated as a slave and actually forced to go one mile, you're to actually go freely a second mile. You're to turn over your rights. You're to turn down things that are naturally, uh, naturally your right. Um, the first verse 40 communicates a similar theme. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. This would be the equivalent of somebody suing you. You have a, you know, I don't know, let's see, you, uh, you run over somebody's scooter, they're going to sue you and try to take your house, and you give it to them, right? Even though maybe you were in the right, right? So um, this raises some really deep questions, and we'll get into these in future studies. But um, basically, I think the, the uh, central point to take home here regarding giving is Jesus asking, is asking Christians to give very generously, generously from our heart, and even when we have a particular right that would give us the right not to give to somebody, I believe Jesus here is telling us to surrender that right and give freely. Let's look next at what Jesus tells us about loving our enemies. This is a famous command from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, it's probably still shared today. In Matthew uh, verses 43 to 45, we read, You have heard it said, 
you, will, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your father that is in heaven. So there's many, many, many commands here and they, they go for chapters and chapters. And we're going to wrap up the command section here because I think this, this, this segment, this selection of commands gives us basically a taste of what Jesus is driving at. But I think this particular command, this particular command that Jesus gives us regarding loving our enemies really drives home all the other points, basically. Again, we note that Jesus is calling um, people to a greater righteousness. It's, it's you know, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so it's pretty natural to love your neighbor, right? And there's, there's a big debate in the Old Testament about what it means to love your, en- your neighbor and who your neighbor really is. And, and the goal there was really, I think, to a large extent, well, I don't have to love Joe because Joe's not my neighbor, right? Typically, your neighbors are people, in, by and large, in most part, kind of like you. They kind of have a similar job. They kind of have a similar home. They kind of uh, go around in similar social circles. If you have a social circle, right? Right? Their kids go to the, to the they play in the game with your kids, right? Um, it's, it's natural. It's not, it's not extraordinary. It's not transformational. It's not deeper to love your neighbor. But loving your enemy, and even, even higher and more difficult than that, how about loving those that persecute you, right? Praying for those that persecute you? Mm. Pretty high standard, huh? That's the last person I think I would want to pray about, is that person that, not the person that bugs me, but the person that actually persecutes me based either on my faith or my beliefs or my, or my ideas or my concepts. Before we move to the next point, I just want to bring our attention to how, that, how loving your enemies closes. Notice how Jesus says that all these things, loving and praying for our enemies, it's so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is how God's children act. These are not just things that basically we do, but these are people that, that, people that do these things, that love their enemies and pray for those that persecute us, that somehow, does this warrant, does this generate, does this give us the right to be sons of our kingdom in, that are in heaven? Perhaps. We'll look at that in just a bit here. So, two ways to look at this. One, beauty and I think secondly, terror. In all these commands that Jesus sets before us, and we just took a slight sampling of the pages and pages of, of commands, um, I think we can see beauty. Don't, don't you, don't I, in my heart of hearts, if I really think about it, uh, and, and I'm honest with myself, don't I really want to be like that? Doesn't my heart long to be like that? A person that's appreciative and loving everybody else, especially those that bug us, that bug me, right? Don't I really want to love those that bug me? Don't I really want to have a heart of total fidelity towards my wife? Don't you want to have a heart of total fidelity towards you, those that you love? Don't you, don't I, want to be regarded as a man or a woman of our word, completely trustworthy, maybe even when the boss is away, right? Do we work the same way when the boss is there as when the boss is gone? Don't we want to be like that, though? Isn't that what Jesus is calling us to? Don't we want to love others sacrificially, so sacrificially, that we put their needs first before ours? Have you ever run across a person, person, probably a Christian, 
that's so loving and so generous and so kind and so giving that like you're just flabbergasted. Maybe it's towards a person that you can't stand or a person that has issues that you can't deal with and just drive you crazy. And then here this person walks up and sits down and talks to that person for 10 minutes. I mean, don't we know that that's how God has called us to be? And finally, don't we want to have a love so deep that in some mysterious way we become children of our Father that is in heaven? Isn't, isn't that really how we want to live in our heart of hearts? Don't we see the beauty of these commands that Jesus is giving us? Well, for those of us that are um, uh, perhaps less, more pessimistic and more perfectionistic, I think those of us that are that way and the rest of us as well, if we're honest at about this point in time, a terror begins to set in. And um, I think we begin to realize that um, we fall short of this righteousness that Christ has called us to. There's a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones um, entitled Sermon on the Mount. And if you ever are looking for some kind of devotional reading to, uh, to uh, really just fire up your, your, your love of the Lord and your, your, your reading of the scriptures, I'd highly recommend this book on the Sermon on the Mount by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, it's basically a transcription taken by his secretary doing shorthand during these series of sermons that, that uh, Lloyd-Jones did in the early 20th century in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, what Jones wrote is very profound in a number of ways, but um, uh, in, in this book, basically, Jesus drives, Jesus, Martin Lloyd-Jones drives home the central point of, of this terror by saying that in the early 20th century, uh, people would say, oh, you don't have to be a Christian um, and believe all the doctrine. So there was the idea that basically the Sermon on the Mount was like a good rule to follow. Lloyd-Jones says, you don't have to be a Christian and believe all the doctrine. All you have to do is love, admire, and live according to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Jones says further, basically anybody that is um, that ever says that has never really read it. If you actually look at the Sermon on the Mount and you read what it says and you grasp what it says, um, you will, as, as Joan said, God save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Get it away from me. Take it away. It exposes me. It reveals me. It condemns me. When we look at what Jesus has called us to, that high standard, doesn't doesn't a cloud come over our countenance? Aren't we basically, at that point, becoming more and more aware of the gap between what Jesus has called us to and where we're really at? For Christians here this morning, Jesus has saved us. We're born again. He's brought us from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. But how do we go forward? How do we achieve this greater righteousness? How does a Christian live in such a way? How do we not just hear these commands and think, okay, well, I've, I've got to love those people that really bug me, so I'm going to, I don't know, have lunch with, with Joe, basically. How do we avoid, basically, just trying to strive up in ourselves and become nothing nothing more than greater hypocrites than the Pharisees. How can we be changed? Well, we find this answer in um, the Beatitudes, the first introduction, the first chunk of the Sermon on the Mount, 
where we are taught, where we see basically what a Christian is. Up until this point, we've been primarily looking at ourselves, how our lives, how your life, how my life measures up to what Jesus is, has put up as a standard. But the good news is this kingdom of righteousness, this kingdom of heaven, it's not about us. The good news is that in addition to Jesus's command of greater righteousness, the Sermon on the Mount includes more and includes this little introduction entitled The Beatitudes. And that's what Jeff read this morning to introduce our service. I mentioned earlier Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Lloyd-Jones weighs in well on this, this uh, Beatitudes, the Beatitudes as well. And um, at one point in time, Lloyd-Jones says that this was considered the model by which all people should behave. And this was in the early 20th century before both of the world wars, they were coming out of, a, it was a time of life where basically a lot of really great things were happening. There was a lot of innovation, a lot of technological development. It was the enlightenment. There was knowledge and people were beginning to feel like, you know what? We've kind of got this wired. And so, this, and so the Sermon on the Mount at that time, basically, they call this the social gospel view of the Sermon on the Mount. It taught that if men live by its principles, we could bring about heaven on earth. That basically by following these commands, war would be banished, and all our troubles would cease. Well, two world wars that happened just after challenged this view, but according to Lloyd-Jones, the biggest problem with this uh, simplistic view of the Sermon on the Mount was, and I quote, always ignoring the Beatitudes, those statements with which the Sermon on the Mount begins. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are they that mourn. As I hope to show you, said Lloyd-Jones, these statements mean that no man can ever live the Sermon on the Mount in and of himself and unaided. The advocates of this social gospel have conveniently ignored the Beatitudes. They have rushed to a consideration of the detailed injunctions, or Jesus' commands, and have said, this alone is the gospel. What Lloyd-Jones is driving home here is that the Sermon on the Mount is more than just ethical prescriptions. It's more than a punch list to, uh, to achieve righteousness. It's more than the, the righteousness of the Pharisees, right? It, it, there's something more, greater, deeper than this. It's more about avoiding murder and doing good. While external, confirmation, external conformance is called, Jesus calls for an internal transformation, a transformation that's evidenced by something deeper, by hearts and minds that honor rather than hate, by hearts and minds that are repulsed by infidelity, by hearts and minds that prompt sacrificial giving, and by hearts that have a love so deep that Christians pray for those that persecute them. Before we can behave like this, we need to be changed within. Before we can live like this, something has to happen to us, and that something is in the Beatitudes. At first glance, you might think the Beatitudes are talking about different types of people, and we'll see that in a minute. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. It's not talking about um, people that have natural meekness or natural poverty of spirit or other natural uh, attitudes, personality types. It's talking about 
as we'll see, basically all Christians and how Christians are based on whom God has made them. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Um, I, I think Tim Jones, Tim Keller, expresses these sentiments well as well regarding the Beatitudes when he says, the Beatitudes are a description of the kind of person we must be before we can do the things that Christ calls us to. We must be this before we can do this. Or as a pastor in Roseville, California noted, before do comes be, before behave comes believe. Who a Christian is precedes what a Christian does. And we see this point again and again in the Beatitudes. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5.3, we'll look at a few of these Beatitudes to uh, see what we're driving at here. Chapter 5, verse 3 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lloyd-Jones again, This of necessity is the one which must come at the very beginning of the Beatitudes, for good reason that there is no entering to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God apart from it. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian, of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and all other characteristics are, the, are in a sense the result of this one. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be spiritually bankrupt? In a lot of cases, you know, if you think about, okay, I've died, I'm, I'm, I'm facing God before the throne in heaven, and Jesus says, well, what do you got? And you say, well, you know, I've, I've got some good things and I've got some bad things. Um, and um, now that I see that you're real, I think it'd be really kind of nice if you uh, help me out a little bit here and, and um, throw a little bit of your help on my, on my good pile so I can, I, can get over, I can get over the edge and get over the, over the line and, and get in here. And, and that's not what spiritually bankrupt is being, right? Spiritually bankrupt is seeing how big God is and how small we are and realizing that we got nothing, right? got nothing. No money in the bank, no, no uh, master's degree, no doctorate degree, no bachelor's degree, no high school diploma, um, no car, no money, no house. I got nothing, right? That's what it means to be spiritually bankrupt, is to have nothing, basically. Before we can be filled with God's spirit, we need to be emptied of ourselves. Before we can actually come to Christ on our knees and actually seek his help, we need to actually realize and become aware of and in our heart of hearts know how small and how, how wretched and how poor we really are. That attitude basically sets up and becomes the attitude that gives us entry into where we need to be, basically. And that, that's the root of all the behavior that Jesus is calling for here. And it's all rooted in this blessed is, in, is blessed of the poor in spirit in this first beatitude. Second beatitude tells us how these spiritually poor Christians act. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those of us that are aware of our spiritual bankruptcy, um, we naturally mourn. We naturally mourn that the sin, our shortcomings, as large or small as they are, that disqualify us from helping God out in any way. You know you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to commend you, to recommend you to God, 
you repent, you mourn. The third beatitude, it describes the attitude of these spiritually poor Christians that mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those of us that know our spiritual poverty, those of us that know, um, those of us that mourn, have an attitude of meekness. It's just natural, right? It's just natural. When you know you've got nothing, it's, it's, it's when I have money in the bank and I've got, I've got everything's rolling, that's when I'm proud. That's when I'm, that's when I'm like, I'm cruising and you don't, better not get in my way because uh, you don't measure up, right? But those that Christ has revealed our need and our poverty, those of us that God has put mourning in our hearts due to our poverty, our spiritual poverty, are meek. And that meekness sets the ground again. The lowly, poor, meek Christian is the one that seeks help from God himself. Okay, those are four Beatitudes in total. I'm just going to cover five. There's actually a total of nine. But I hope you get the point here. Before we can do what Jesus has called, to do, called us to do as a Christian, God needs to change our hearts. God needs to give us the humble attitude the heart of Christ described in the Beatitudes. I actually had one more Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this is important only because it's such good news. What Jesus is telling us here is that when you, when he's not going to leave you in that distressed, depressed, sad position. There's good news. If you and I, when you and I recognize our spiritual poverty, then we're naturally looking for an answer. Then we're looking to Christ for an answer. And when we go to him with hunger and thirst, two of the strongest emotions that are known, we will be satisfied. When, Christ, when we look not to ourselves but to God for righteousness, we shall be satisfied. Okay. Next we're going to look at point three. What a Christian knows, without sounding pedantic, I'd like to do a little brief summary of what we just learned about what it means to live the Christian life. We looked at what a Christian does, who a Christian is, and we're going to look basically next at who a Christian knows. We found the answer to the uh, question of what a, we found, we found the answer to what a Christian does in the command section of the Beatitudes, right? Jesus gives this big, long, two-and-a-half chapter punch list of all the things that he expects us to do. So we know what Jesus calls us to do, and it's a deep list as well as a long list um, by what we read in the commands. And he calls us to a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. We found the answer to, well, as we studied that list that Jesus gave us, I saw, you saw a gap, right? Not a, a gap, a really big gap, right? And we found the answer to that gap, the hope in addressing that gap in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes have told us basically when we know, when Christ reveals to us how broken, how short, how short we fall, how poor we are, that God then will meet that need because um, that's his desire. But that that changed heart is what God gives us. We're able to do what God has called us to do because of who Jesus has made us, and that's shown in the Beatitude.
Um, who a Christian knows indicates something that I think a lot of times we miss. I typically tend to focus on what am I supposed to do and how do I do it, right? But we need to not forget the fountainhead or the source of all righteousness, who a Christian knows. Jesus didn't leave you. He didn't leave me alone to live the Christian life. Scripture shows us that knowing Jesus is a really, really important thing. Um, the Sermon on the Mount and that outline I mentioned, right? Beatitudes, commands, warnings, right? Three warnings at the end, uh, pairs, three pairs of two things, basically. Those warnings are very sober. And one of the warnings we find in seven, chapter 7, verse 21, reads as follows. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty good works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, I think the, sober, the most sober part, sobering part of that warning is that Jesus is saying, they said, we did all this stuff, right? You called for all these things and look what we did. Look at our list. Look at our punch list. Aren't we great? And Jesus didn't find fault with them for that. Well, he said, anyway, that's for a later, that's for a later, that's for a future sermon. But basically Jesus said, I don't care what you did. I never knew you. Actually, at the root of all this, knowing Jesus is, is the key to the heart that we read of in the Beatitudes, that poverty of spirit. It's that, it's that poverty of spirit in the Beatitudes that brings the fruit of deeper righteousness and that Jesus calls for in the commands. Do we know Jesus? How do we know Jesus? By following Jesus, by reading his word, through prayer, through worship. As we know Jesus, as we follow him, as we look to him, we become like him. I want to look a bit closer at uh, um, how Jesus um, basically demonstrated this greater righteousness. And actually, if you think about it, um, not too hard, it was Jesus himself who actually fulfilled the Beatitudes. It was Jesus himself who actually fulfilled the example of all those things that were called to in the commands and also all those things that we are meant to be like in the Beatitudes. When you think about it, wasn't Jesus like the person that is the goal of the Beatitudes because he became poor for our sake? He set aside his riches and, and rights and came to, to earth to die in our place? Because of what Jesus did, we're blessed with membership in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus mourned, because Jesus wept, because Jesus died in the dark, you and I can, be, can receive the comfort promised in the Beatitudes. Because Jesus was meek, because Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter without any complaint or word back, we can experience the blessing of that Beatitude by inheriting the earth. Because Jesus was poor and poor, pure in heart, we're able to see God 
we inherit the blessing because of what Jesus did. Jesus, in a like, similar manner, also fulfilled the commands. Jesus taught every human being with respect and honor, no matter what their status. Christians look to Jesus as an example of fidelity, one who actually loved his disciples even when they abandoned him. Jesus even loved Peter, who took an oath that he would never, that he never knew Jesus himself, right? Christians look to Jesus, who fulfilled the command of giving generously to those in need, and of his abundant grace and mercy. And finally, Christians look to and follow Jesus, who died on the cross for sinners like you and me, as the perfect demonstration of sacrificial love a love that sets aside personal desires and puts those desires of others before him. So, in conclusion, the Sermon on the Mount is more than a punch list of things that we're supposed to do, right? It's a life of greater righteousness, a life that comes from the root of Christ working in our heart, and out of that changed heart comes changed lives. I'd like to issue a command in closing, and you can consider this over lunch today or over the next week. But um, Jeff, Jeff read this um, verse from this morning. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on a stand as it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Christian, does this verse describe you? Are your work and life, is your work and life so perfect, so righteous, that people, others, people at work, people at school, see your life and give glory to God? How do you feel about this, honestly? How do you measure up? How do I measure up? Do you still see the gap between what Jesus has called us to be what Jesus says we, we, we are to be, we are, and where we're really at? Well, I want to close with good news. The Sermon on the Mount is good news for Christians. If you see the high standard, if you recognize your spiritual poverty, if you look at this standard and realize that, no, I'm not the guy they look at and go, oh, well, praise God, look at how loving and patient and kind this guy is. How does he do it, Right? If you're not that way, if I'm not that way, if we go to God and we mourn and we repent and we pray for and hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's word promise us that we'll be filled. And when we do that, we're going to bring him glory because that's really what we're all called to do is to be here not to punch a list and be a good person and be the proper person living the righteous, perfect Christian life but actually to be a person that shines and points, shines light, but that light actually shines on Jesus Christ and points others to him who is the source of all truth and all righteousness and all hope and peace. You pray with me now together. Jesus, I thank you for your words here in the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for showing us how to live the Christian life, a life based not upon our righteousness, but rather a life based upon our poverty of spirit, and even better yet, a 
life based upon your righteousness, upon knowing you, upon having our hearts transformed by you, all that results in works that give not us glory, but you glory. Amen.